So my name is Sharmila and right now I am a part-time faculty at the Seattle Colleges and I split my time between US and the IIT Kanpur and Ladakh in, in the Himalayas. Hi, my name is Rituja and this is Roti, Kapra or Makan, where we talk about the basics of life, food, clothes and the idea of home. Sharmila was in 8th grade when she first sat in an airplane. She was coming to Seattle during the Durga Puja holidays to visit her mom who was doing her postdoc. It was supposed to be a short visit, but Sharmila decided to stay back and enrolled in middle school in Seattle. She went on to graduate high school from Garfield and then completed her undergrad in chemistry and oceanography from UW and a master's in marine science from the University of South Carolina. Today, Sharmila divides her time between Seattle in the United States and Kanpur and Ladakh in India. How did this ocean-loving person find a new home in the mountains of Ladakh? Let's find out. So I moved to the US in 1999 with my parents. My mom came here for a postdoc and my dad and I, we stayed back in India because I still had school and, and he had his job and everything. So about four or five months later, we came for a one month visit during the during Diwali and, and Durga Puja. Mm-hmm. And then, um, then I decided to stay. And uh, when I decided to stay, it was, you know, okay, let's get you enrolled in a school. So when you came to the United States, mm-hmm. you know, you were in eighth grade, so mm-hmm. you were probably like 13, 14 years old. How was it for you to adjust uh, to the American school system or to just the whole environment here? In, initially, it was it was a bit rough, but it wasn't, you know, super, super tough. So when I came, it was at an odd time of the academic year. And there wasn't much openings in a lot of the schools. So I got thrown into one of the only schools that had um, that had opening. And that was a mini, mini middle school. It was somewhere in, on the east side of Capitol Hill. And, uh, you know, it was it was great. It was uh, a learning experience for sure. I think one of the biggest hurdles I had to get over was I'd gone to an all-girls school. In India, you know, not for any like specific reason, but that it was just how it is, you know. We did have towards uh, since I was in seventh grade, we had guys come for an after school, like an evening school, you know. So we were used to seeing guys, but we didn't ever have classes with them, you know, in our school. So it was it was a bit strange, like sitting beside a guy for the first time in a classroom. <laughs> so that, and they were all so big. Wow, I'm, I'm I feel so tiny. Yeah. I think I was really blown away by the diversity. I think in India, all we had was Bengali students. Yeah, we had, you know, other students from other states, you know, but um, they were, we were all Indians, essentially, you know, so it's only one race. But yeah, I was really blown away by the different mm-hmm. races in the school, different, you know. I was probably the only Indian student. We had we had two or three Indian girls, but they were from uh, from Fiji and the Mauritius. 
I felt that the like in eighth grade, even in eighth grade, you know, everybody was so confident, so mature, you know, not afraid to to speak out, right? Yeah. So that took me a while. Yeah. <laughs> to get used to. So one of the things that happens in India when you go to school is you know you take your dabba every day, right? Like oh you yeah. Lunch uh-huh. box every day uh-huh. to school. Uh huh. And, uh, I mean, I have memories of, you know, my mom packing me, like, roti or, you know, sabji yeah. and then coming in, yeah. like, that three-layered the tin three-layer box, like tin, a steel yeah. box, right? Um, did you take homemade lunches to school here in the United States? And then... I did. I did. Partly because um, the cafeteria food was, unfortunately, really unhealthy at the time. It was all fried food, essentially. It has changed now. Um, but it was it was really bad, you know, not good food at all. So very unhealthy, which is really unfortunate. So yeah, I took a simple sandwich, you know. Yeah. Did you ever take like Indian food or Bengali food to school? Ah, uh, yeah, sometimes. Like if if we had leftovers, you know, I would I would throw it in. Mm-hmm. But you know, just a sandwich. It's quick to make in the morning. Yeah. Um, and you didn't have any experiences of like racism or somebody saying your food is smelly or, you know, did you have any, any of those experiences when you were in, in school? school? No, because Garfield was so mixed, you know, we had, um, I think my food was far less smelly than some of the other food, you know? So we had a huge Southeast Asian students community, you know, Chinese, Vietnamese, Cambodian, Filipino. We had a couple of Laotian students and they had they brought a lot of fish or seaweed, you know, so that stuff smelled more strong. It had more stronger smell than than Indian food. And usually, I just took a sandwich because it was simple and quick. So, yeah. Did you feel like you faced any kind of racism when you were at school? Ah, uh, racism? Ah, uh, no, because everybody was so mixed, you know. It was such yeah. It was really diverse. We talked a bit more about adjusting to middle school. It helped that Sharmila had a great relationship with her parents. Having enjoyed the same kind of freedom and autonomy in India, she did not feel the need or have the urge to act out as a teenager in America. I find that there is an interesting dynamic between the students of Indian origin from the United States and the Indians who come from India to study. So I asked Sharmila if she found these distinctions when she was a student. Uh, Ashwini actually she had come from Mumbai but I couldn't I couldn't tell from her clothing or anything you know that she had just come stepped off from the, the boat <laughs> yeah stepped off the boat you know it's like, so uh, we were in the chemistry class together and she was just here on an exchange program for one or two quarters or maybe a whole year and her mom was a big shot fashion designer and her brother was in some big in some university i think cambridge in you know yeah in england so she was you know yeah and boy it's, she was very like yeah i i could not measure up like you know i i couldn't even relate to her you know that oh what this is the india that I had left behind, you know. So I was very cut off from the Indian community, actually. I didn't have didn't have much Indian friends over here, and was it by choice or it was? So I always thought that oh, I'm too cool, you know. Because a couple of times I did go back to India, I couldn't relate with my old uh, my old friends, you know, from 
from my school. Yeah. I'm in a different, I've had different experiences and there's, they can't relate to that at all. I never thought I would go back to India. I thought, oh, I could not relate with them, you know. Um, Indian kids coming here, oh, what do they know? I'm so cool, you know. Um, but then in grad school, I felt a very big vacuum. I could not, re- I, I couldn't, I realized how different Americans are, you know, and deep down that I really cannot connect with them. And the only place I can connect with is these these Indian grad students who have just come from India, actually, and the international students. So I was very actively involved with the ISO. I would go pick up the new graduate students, you know, from airport. They would even come stay in my house a couple nights before they went to their apartments. And at first they also thought, oh, what, you know, she's, you know, she's ABCD, you know, not born, but, you know, she's, you know, she's, what does she know about the real India? And then I was like, oh, what do they know about America? Oh, my God, you know? But, um, yeah, but but we learned so much, and they became my wonderful friends. And that's when I realized, like, I want to go back to India. And when I graduated, I went to Ladakh. Being an only child of my parents, I'm always curious about those in similar situation like mine. I understand you're an only child. Mm-hmm. So talk to me a little bit about that. How does it feel to be an only child? To be an only child? Oh, it's great. <laughs> I haven't known the other side. Um, yeah, it's great. Maybe at times it's lonely, but it's nothing that I have thought was super difficult. Um, Do you feel uh, like as you are growing older and mm-hmm. your parents are growing older, I know they're not super old, but you know, mm-hmm. as they are growing older... Do you feel a certain kind of responsibility on you to kind of take care of them as they get older, or um, is that... Oh, yeah, if if I had a sibling, maybe I could split that responsibility. It would be easier. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you feel like uh, it's very difficult to... um, kind of disappoint them, disappoint them like have you felt like as you were going through life and you were taking certain taking certain decisions mm-hmm. um did it feel like you always had kind of their reaction in mind or has that not been the case? Mm, sometimes yeah but my parents have always been so liberal and open-minded you know had not really yeah I mean I've always thought like wait you know how would they react you know but then uh, yeah it hasn't been it hasn't. that it hasn't been I think when there's when I told them I wanted to move back to to India and I wanted to set up in Ladakh I think they were worried but they've never said no I think that was probably the biggest that's probably the only time when I was worried about their reaction like oh wait I'm doing it backwards you know um but no they were they were happy they yeah, they, were, they were supportive, very supportive of everything that I've ever done. A movie shown in 11th grade in her LA class changed Sharmila's outlook towards the world. Sharmila was inspired to live in the mountains and serve its people after watching Seven Years in Tibet a movie based on the real-life adventure of an Austrian mountaineer, Heinrich Harrer. Tibet didn't quite pan out for Sharmila, 
but Ladakh became home. I asked Sharmila to share the story of how Amrita Seattle was born, what inspires her to live to serve others, and her dreams and vision for the future. It was called the Himalayan Education Lifeline Program. As a volunteer, I hadn't been to India in the last 15, 16 years. Enough. Since I had moved, I'd gone back maybe once or twice and when my grandparents were sick and that was about it. So uh, after graduation, then went back and I went to Ladakh and fell in love with the place, with the school and wanted a life there. And then I came back. After six months, I was teaching there for six months at the Lambdon School. Then mm-hmm. I came back and um, before I could figure out how I could split my time between the U.S. and the Himalayas, I applied for a part-time faculty position at the Seattle Colleges. And I think some stuff clicked and you know it worked out. And it, it's a great place to work there as well. And it allows me the freedom to, to go back and, back and forth. Mm-hmm. Wow, so Amrita Seattle came into play when I was, right before the year I was about to start grad school. So my dad was doing, um, was helping out, you know, students in Bengal and doing some work with arsenic uh, in affected regions in in, um, western, eastern West Bengal, you know, near the border, um, Bangladesh-India border. And he was helping out a whole bunch of students, um, and him and his few colleagues, but they weren't really tied as an organization or they were just as individuals that were helping out. And then my mom wanted to start something officially so that they could reach out to more people and do larger projects and get something going, you know. So it was about 2009, 2010 when they officially like, created Omrita Seattle and we were initially focused in West Bengal and then uh, and I was doing my grad school thing and you know and and I knew of Amrita's activities and you know I would get news I was involved a little bit uh, but then when I went to Ladakh and I taught in the school and I saw there's a huge need for activities there too and now the now we have the bandwidth to to expand beyond West Bengal so yeah, so we've taken our projects there, and since I like to live there, it's easy to to get the projects, to execute the projects, you know. And uh, yeah, and I like to I like to live and help out the communities in the Himalayas. They're they are uh, they're very special, you know. They live in a beautiful setting, and their world is changing fast. They they're suspended between between the modern world and the ancient world. And yeah, I think education is the key, you know, so I like to bring education to these remote villages, to the girls especially from nomadic families who get um, not trafficked exactly, but one of the things is these nomads who are there, and a lot of these, some of these villages in certain parts of Ladakh, they are so remote and sealed off by high mountains that the growing season, the farming season is really long because the winter is super harsh. So there's not a lot of food for them. So what happens is the parents, they send off the kids to families living in Leh. Leh is that main main mm-hmm. center, main, main city. You know, often it could be a family friend or a very distant relative, you know, or a family that they, that they don't even know. So the kid who can be very young, you know, as young as maybe three, four, four, five years old, 
they'll just send away from the family they'll stay with the family do um do all the household work domestic chores you know and in return the family takes care of the kids daily needs basic needs and provides a a public school education takes care of them they're not you know super they're not abused but there's a lot of expectations for household work comes first you know and then your then your schooling so the kids they don't they're not even if they go to school half of the times you know they're not able to to attend because of something this in the house something that in the house you got to go to the field it's time to harvest the crops you know i would like to bring bring that hostel you know uh, set up a residential place in lay so that these kids can stay together and all and their sole job is to do well in school you know they'll be going to school they'll be guided academic guidance so that they can perform well and break out of their that cycle you know Sharmila and Amrita Seattle have successfully executed many projects in Seattle, Nepal, Ladakh and Bengal. From building libraries to running environmental and medical camps in remote areas to maintaining trails and feeding homeless teenagers. What inspires me the most is Sharmila's simplicity, tenacity, resolve and dogged cheerful determination with which she has dedicated her life to serve. She is young and I couldn't help but ask her how she views money and the luxuries that it provides. More money doesn't bring more happiness and peace. You know, so but serving others brings a different level of satisfaction within that money cannot give. And if you my mom always says like if you do good work, you know, you don't have to worry about money. just like in school they would say like just study don't worry about your grades if you study hard the grades will come you know they'll take care of themselves so yeah yeah i always followed my heart like whatever i wanted to do you know whatever my heart where my heart called and uh really i've never planned i never even thought i would live in ladakh you know i think in high school if anybody would have asked me what i wanted to be or you know ambition or like those personal statements that we have to think about that i think i wrote chemical engineering you know i never thought i would come to ladakh you know lastly we talked about food sharmila enjoys the hearty filling thuppas the vegetable stews from ladakh but her answer to what her favorite food is might surprise you so moving on to food now mm-hmm. so um I know Ladakhi food is very different than Bengali food. <laughs> so, do you like Ladakhi food? Like what what is your um my favorite food? What is your favorite food? My favorite food is actually idli sambar. Very I was born in Hyderabad. Oh. My parents okay. lived there for 8 to 10 years. My mom lived there for 6 years. I lived there for 5 years. So my nursery, you know, kindergarten um was in at a local like a local preschool over there in our neighborhood in Secunderabad which you can barely recognize now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah did did you So yeah, all my that? nursery poems were in in Telugu. I still know how to count in Telugu and things and some little phrases. My dad, my mom and dad know more, you know, sentences, but uh, but yeah, my I still remember um, snapshots, you know, of my mom picking up 
idli and that the chutney from this little restaurant, little you know, Dhaba type place, yeah. And they had these big steel racks, you know, of idlis coming out. So maybe that's why, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah idli sambar. Oh, yeah. Even so in do grad you make schools. It now? Yeah, oh yeah. I, I need to have idli at least like three times a month. So like maybe I'll go one week in a month before idlis. Yeah, oh yeah, I, I, I always have to have my idli maker. So do you have that in Ladakh as well? Mm-hmm. Wow, are you the only Italy maker in Ladakh? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, even in South Carolina, I had one. Used it heavily. I would wake up, make the batter, put it to steam, go shower, eat idlis and sambar, and then go to school. Oh, that's so Yeah. Because I always had a big bed of sambar, sambar uh, the stock that I would freeze up and then thaw it out from time to time sometimes. Mm-hmm. On the weekends, I would make sambar... That was Sharmila Pal, a teacher, an entrepreneur, a scientist, and one who lives each day by the motto, live to serve. You are such an inspiration, Sharmila. Thank you. As part of Roti Kapra or Makan, we plan to bring to you regular book reviews. This week, Professor Nalini Ayer reviews Jampa Lahiri's Jhumpa Lahiri needs no introduction as an author to most readers. Her novel, The Namesake, which was made into a film by Meera Nair, has become almost a paradigmatic narrative about the South Asian immigrant experience for those who came after 1965 to this country. Her most recent novel, The Lowland, published in 2013, has garnered much praise and was a nominee for both the Man Booker Prize and for the National Book Award. The novel tells the story of two brothers, Subhash and Udayan, who grow up in Calcutta in the 1960s and early 70s. They are close to one another and when they go to college, their paths diverge. Subhash leaves for the US to get a PhD in chemistry and to study environmental impacts of certain chemicals. Udayan gets drawn into the Naxalite movement and becomes a revolutionary. Along the way, Udayan meets Gauri, a friend's sister. They get married and Udayan becomes a victim of police brutality and leaves behind a young and pregnant wife. When Subhash returns to comfort his parents, he meets his sister-in-law for the first time and seeing the young widow's plight and especially her brutal treatment in an orthodox Hindu household, he offers to marry her and take her away to the US with him. They marry, Gauri has her baby girl and Subhash raises his niece as his own daughter and the child does not learn until much later who her biological father is. What fascinates me about this novel is Lahiri's portrayal of Gauri's life as an immigrant woman and new mother. The family lives in relative isolation in a Rhode Island college town. There aren't many Indian families around and Gauri is not only struggling with the loss of Udayan and the trauma of his death, she also has to contend with raising a child. She had not wanted to be a mother and the pregnancy was an accident. Gauri wants to continue her education and philosophy, to live in a world of ideas and finds domestic life, the making of roti, the managing of kapra and the cleaning of the makan, a prison for her soul. Here is a passage in which Lahiri describes how Gauri manages to find a few minutes of freedom. So Gauri's child is young, a few years old, and this is what happens. 
The following day, she set Bela up at the coffee table in front of the television. She considered every detail, a glass of water in case she was thirsty, a generous plate of biscuits and grapes, extra pencils in case the tip of the one she was drawing with happened to snap. Half an hour's careful preparation to allow for five minutes away. The five minutes doubled to ten, sometimes a bit more, fifteen minutes to be alone to clear her head. It was time to run across the quadrangle to the library to return a book, a simple errand she could have done at any time, but that she was determined to accomplish at that moment. Time to go to the post office and send a letter, requesting an application for one of the doctoral programs Otto Weiss had suggested she look into. Time to speculate that, without Bela or Subhash, her life might be a different thing. It turned into a dare, a puzzle to solve, to keep herself sharp, a private race she felt compelled to run again and again, convinced, if she stopped, that her ability to perform the feat would be lost. Before stepping out, she checked that the stove was turned off, the windows shut, the knives placed out of reach. Not that Bela was that sort of child. So it began in the afternoons. Not every afternoon, but often enough, too often. Disoriented by the sense of freedom, devouring the sensation as a beggar devours food. Sometimes she simply walked to the store and back without buying anything. Sometimes she really did get the mail and sat on a bench on campus and sorted through it. Or she went over to the student union to get a copy of the campus paper, then back inside, rushing up the flight of stairs, at once triumphant and appalled at herself. She unlocked the door where Bela would be, just as she'd left her, never suspecting, never asking where she'd been. Then one day that summer, Subhash came home earlier than usual, intending to take advantage of the last of the warm weather and take Bela to the beach. He found Bela concealed beneath one of the tents she sometimes made by removing the blankets from her bed, draping them over the sofa and the coffee table in the living room. She was content within this structure, playing on her own. She told him that her mother had gone to get the mail, but Gauri wasn't at the bottom of the stairs. Subhash knew that, having just retrieved the mail and come up the stairs himself. Ten minutes later, Gauri returned with a newspaper. She hadn't noticed Subhash's car in the parking lot. Because he hadn't called to say he was leaving early, there was no reason to think he was already home. There she is, Bela said when she walked through the door. See, I told you, she always comes back. But it took Subhash, who was standing at the window, his back to the room, several minutes before he turned around. Following this episode, Gauri enrolls in a doctoral program in Boston and finds childcare during the week for Bela so she can get her degree. Subhash is supportive of her education, but still has expectations about her role as a mother. The more Gauri pulls away, the more Subhash steps into the parent role for Bela. He enjoys time with her and is a nurturing father. Gauri manages to get her education, including a PhD, and when Subhash and Bela visit India following his father's death, she quietly leaves the marriage and moves to California to pursue her career as an academic. The novel continues to follow Bela, Gauri and Subhash through the rest of their lives and I will not share too much more of the plot with you. If in the namesake we had seen Ashok and Ashima as a loving couple who navigated the struggles of immigration and life together in America, in the lowland, Lahiri examines why marriage as an institution is not for all women.
Such an exploration of the prison of domesticity that is further complicated by the isolation wrought by immigration is unique in South Asian immigrant fiction. While we have many novels that have explored the brutality of state violence in India and also the Naxalite movement, what makes the lowland unique for me is this honest and complex exploration of marriage, domesticity and individual freedom. Dr. Nalini Ayer is a professor of English at Seattle University. She reviewed Jampa Lahiri's The Lowlands. Roti, Kapra and Makan is produced by Studio Disha. Theme music by Mansoor Ahmed of Resonate Productions. Our podcast is brand new. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook. If you have any story ideas or comments, 